Snap, an original thriller from Streamski Media. Chapter 1, Par 3, Over Water. The Oasis Spa and Golf Resort, referred to more commonly by guests and staff as simply the Oasis, is a luxurious getaway located in the picturesque town of Cypress Point, North Carolina. Nestled along the intercoastal waterway, the resort offers guests breathtaking views of the ocean and lush greenery. The resort is known for its perfect family-friendly atmosphere, making it a popular destination for weddings and family vacations. The award-winning golf course at the resort, named the Waterfront Lynx, is a must-play for any golf enthusiast. The course boasts 18 stunning Arnold Palmer-designed holes, each offering a unique challenge while taking full advantage of the natural beauty of the location. Guests come to the Oasis for a variety of reasons, but the main draw is the perfect blend of relaxation and adventure. The resort offers a wide range of activities, from lounging on the beach to playing a round of golf on the oceanfront. The on-site spa and fitness center provide a relaxing retreat for guests, while the multiple pools and water sports ensure that there's always something to do for the whole family. The resort also has a variety of dining options, from casual beachside cafes to upscale seafood restaurants. The staff at the Oasis is dedicated to ensuring that guests have the best possible experience. The team is made up of friendly and professional individuals, each with their own area of expertise. The resort can accommodate up to 200 guests on any given day, and the staff works tirelessly to ensure that each guest feels welcome and taken care of. Whether it's a wedding party or a family vacation, the staff at the Oasis is committed to making every stay a memorable one. The sun was just beginning to peek over the horizon, casting a warm, golden glow over the lush green landscape of the golf course. There was rain in the forecast for later that morning, but since they were here anyway, Tyler and Kurt, the groom-to-be and his best man, were going to try and sneak a quick round in before the skies opened up. The duo, golf bags hanging over their shoulders, exited the grand lobby, the crisp morning air was filled with the sound of birds chirping and the gentle rustle of leaves in the trees. The two men were both dressed in golfing attire, polo shirts and khaki shorts, ready to take on the course before the wedding ceremonies began in just a couple of days. Tyler, however, was not at his best. He had been in a rush that morning and couldn't find his cell phone, so he skipped the complimentary buffet and instead crammed down some gummy bears and a half-eaten Snickers bar from the airport. And of course, he washed it down with half of an instant coffee from the lounge. The morning sun beat down mercilessly on Tyler as he trudged through the eighth hole, his mood a mixture of frustration and unease. Kurt, ever the antagonist, had been slyly feeding him beer for the past two hours in a calculated attempt to sabotage his short game, and it was working all too well. As Tyler approached the tee, he couldn't shake the feeling of dread that had settled in the pit of his stomach. He knew this feeling all too well. It was the same one he had experienced in eighth grade while riding the bus on a field trip. After indulging in an entire sleeve of Oreos and washing it down with Dr. Pepper, the choppy suspension had jostled his stomach into a state of disrepair, 
The result had been disastrous. He ended up shitting himself in George Washington's childhood bedroom. But Tyler had learned from his mistake and had been more cautious about his diet ever since. Now, as he stood on the tee, he realized that if he kept playing for another two hours, history would repeat itself and he'd be shitting his pants on the golf course. Hey man, I think I'm going to call it a day after nine holes, Tyler said, his voice tinged with desperation. My stomach is fucked up. Too much beer and gummy bears, Kurt sneered. Yeah, something like that. I need to go or I'm going to shit myself, Tyler replied. We can take a break after the ninth hole if you want, Kurt offered, but Tyler knew it was too late for that. This was one of those times when a clubhouse bathroom just wouldn't do. He needed time, privacy, and a strong exhaust fan for this type of project. With a sense of impending doom, Tyler sunk a four-foot putt for double bogey and wrapped up his day with an uncharacteristically high score of 56. As he headed back up to his room, the elevator ride felt like an eternity. The time bomb in his dockers was ticking louder and louder with every passing second. He didn't even wait for the elevator doors to open fully before rushing through them, making a left towards his suite, before realizing he was headed in the wrong direction. He let out a frustrated, Fuck! Every precious second counted now. His plans to do one more cursory search for his phone before settling in on the toilet were forgotten. There was only one goal now. Make it to the toilet before it was too late. Meanwhile, back at the clubhouse, Kurt finished off his egg and cheese sandwich on a poppy seed bagel and then easily parred the par 5 number 10 hole. He was feeling a sense of renewed confidence as he approached the par 3 over water on number 11. And as most golfers do, he viewed every par 3 as an opportunity for the elusive ace. To his left was a narrow section of the intercoastal waterway, but if he could make it over the water, the hole was just 302 yards away. I can do this, he whispered to himself. As anyone who plays golf regularly will tell you, confidence can be fleeting. His buoyant attitude turned to dismay when, with his first swing, he hooked his number four Titleist golf ball right smack into the middle of the intercoastal waterway. That's my mulligan, he said to himself. He decided he wasn't focused and decided to take a swig of water to wash the lingering flavor of breakfast out of his mouth. Observing that there was no one else around and a little background noise would be nice, he decided to fire up some music to help him focus. He hit shuffle on his iPhone, wiped off his driver with the Nike rag hanging from the back of his golf bag, and walked back to the tee box. After a quick glance at the clouds and a corresponding mental compensation for the wind, which was beginning to pick up, Kurt took a deep breath, lined up his shot, and swung at about 90% of his maximum power. He usually tries to swing with about 80% effort, but he needs to clear the water. And if he swings with 100%, he knows the ball is going to end up right back in the drink. With one perfectly crisp swing, Kurt made flush contact. The ball soared through the air, clearing the water with ease and landed just in front of the fringe of the green, but must have hit something because it took an odd bounce and ended up rolling backwards, ending up just inches from the water. Kurt took a moment to admire his shot. He's not pleased with where the ball ended up, but it was a hell of a shot, and he knows you can't always control how the ball bounces or where exactly it lands. 
He took the cart path to the area just behind the green, retrieved his wedge, and headed towards the ball, which sat partially obscured by some mud and grass on the boundary between where the rough grass stopped and the muddy area that led to the intercoastal waterway began. Kurt bent down to retrieve his golf ball from the brush, but as he did so, a clap of thunder echoed in the distance, and he felt a sudden splash of water hit his face. Confused and disoriented, Kurt tried to wipe the water from his eyes, but as he lifted his arm to do so, he noticed that the movement faltered, and he never made contact with his face. Disoriented but not feeling any pain, Kurt reflexively glanced downward, and it is then that he noticed his arm had been severed, just below the elbow. At once the pain was intense. Kurt could feel the warm rush of blood as it flowed freely from his shredded, gnarly stump. Groggy and lightheaded, Kurt stumbled and fell to one knee, and as he looked up at the sky to orient himself, he heard a snap and could feel something clamp onto his right ankle. A second later, he was on his back and being dragged into the water. He barely had time to catch half a breath of fresh air before being pulled beneath the surface. Grasping for something with his right arm, anything to help him regain control, all he's able to grab is his golf ball, which is useless, and which he takes with him into the depths. Kurt could feel pain in his arm and legs as he bounced along the bottom of the intercoastal. The metallic taste of blood filled his mouth as he struggled to stay conscious and fought to get back to the surface. For a moment, he was able to break free, reaching the surface for one last gasp of air. His final experience before he dipped beneath the waves was the sight of a bright green flag fluttering in the wind. Atop the green, on the par 3 number 11. Chapter 2. Investigation. Jack Cassidy was born and raised in the rough streets of New York City. From a young age, he knew he wanted to make a difference in the world and decided to become a police officer. He worked his way up through the ranks, starting as a beat cop and eventually becoming a detective in the city's most elite crime-fighting unit. Throughout his career, he was known for his fearless attitude and determination to bring justice to the streets. However, after 20 years of dealing with the fast-paced and stressful environment of the city, Jack began to feel the weight of the job on his shoulders. In search of a change of pace, Jack applied for a job as the chief of police for Cypress Point, a small resort community in North Carolina. The town, known for its luxurious resorts and golf clubs, was a stark contrast to the gritty streets of New York City. Jack was surprised when he got the job and decided to take the opportunity to start a new chapter in his life. With his strong leadership skills and experience in law enforcement, he felt confident that he could make a positive impact in the community. Jack is a tall, athletic man in his late 40s with short, dark hair and a well-groomed beard. He has a stern expression, but his eyes reveal a hint of kindness and compassion. Despite the demanding nature of his job, he maintains a healthy lifestyle, often going for runs in the early morning before starting his workday. He is a no-nonsense kind of person, but he is also fair and just in his approach to law enforcement. He is determined to keep the peace and ensure the safety of the residents and visitors of Cypress Point. June 25th, 6.59 a.m. The coffee maker in Jack's kitchen clicks on. Jack is awake, but barely. 
He's lived in his new home with his wife Mary and his dog Chester for a little over three weeks, and it's just a different sound than he's used to, and it's given him some mild insomnia since he moved in. Instead of city streets, taxi cabs, and the occasional sounds of late-night hooligans, Jack goes to sleep to the sound of gentle nature. Luckily, the job hasn't been too stressful so far, and he's been able to get to bed a bit earlier than usual. Jack's two-story coastal-style home is located about a block from the beach, but he can hear the ocean waves well. The house is nestled among tall pine trees and feels like the kind of private retreat he'd always dreamed of vacationing to. Now he lives there, and life is good. 7.01 a.m. Chief, says the voice on the other end of the line. It's Vargas. Deputy James Vargas is 34 years old and he's lived here all his life. He works hard, he takes his job seriously, and Jack liked him immediately. Apparently a man went missing yesterday afternoon during the storm on the golf course over at the Oasis, Vargas says. Chief Cassidy glances out the window at a bird that's peeling a worm off the driveway. His cell phone, keys, and other belongings were all found in his golf cart, but there was no sign of the man, says Vargas. How can a grown man go missing on a resort golf course? Well, there's woods, there's water. He could have hit his head and fallen in, Deputy Vargas says. We already did a pretty thorough search of the woods this morning, but there's concern he may have ended up in the water. You see, his pitching wedge was found at the shoreline. And this isn't just some golf course pond. This is the intercoastal waterway. You get a diver out there yet? The chief replied. Well, that's why I'm calling. I need you to approve that, said Vargas. Go ahead, the chief said. I'm on my way down there. The chief kissed his wife and dog goodbye, hopped into his blue and white department-issued Ford truck, hit the noise and the cherries, and sped to the resort. He had been looking for a chance to test out his new ride. Jack arrived at the resort at 7.44 a.m. The state of the course was in disarray from the storm. Branches, leaves, and other debris littered the usually pristine grounds. Several other branches looked as if they could go at any moment. It was one hell of a storm. Deputy Vargas greeted him in the parking lot adjacent to where the golf carts were stored. Anything new? The chief asked. Diver is on the way. He'll be here in about a half hour. I just met with the resort manager, Mr. Blackwood. Orion Blackwood? The chief asked. Yeah, the guy from the signs and commercials. He's running for Senate. Vargas continued. I told him I'd send him your way after I was done getting you up to speed. My secretary said that his campaign people stopped by the office a few days ago, but I was out with some of the other deputies. I've been wanting to meet him. Seems like an interesting guy from everything I've heard. Just then, a golf cart pulled up. On it sat Rob Thompson, head of security for the resort. Chief, deputy, you guys want a lift? The chief and the deputy hopped on board Thompson's cart with the chief up front and Deputy Vargas sitting along the back. The ride to the scene was mostly silent. Thompson didn't seem like much of a talker. Chief Cassidy asked, where was the cart found? And Security Chief Thompson walked him to a spot just behind the green. We brought it back in last night. We didn't want to leave it out there in the storm where it could get damaged. Thompson then silently walked down to the edge of the water and pointed out the spot where the club was found. The water was murky from the storm, and lots of leaves and other debris could be seen floating on the surface. There were no observable tracks, no signs of a disturbance, no weapons, no notes, and no indication of foul play. 
just a long silver golf club with the letters PW etched along the bottom. Maybe he got drunk and fell in, said Vargas. Staring out at the water, Security Chief Thompson decided it was time to chime in. Let me tell you about growing up in the Everglades, son. I seen things. Things that'll make your hair stand on end. I remember the family next door. They raised goats. Every so often, one of them goats would just up and disappear. We all thought it was some thief coming round, taking what weren't his. But then, one summer, must have been about 1973, three goats went missing in three days. And then a dog. And then a fisherman bringing in his traps. We found the traps, but never found the man. And then, a few weeks later, a young'un was fishing, and he reels in a femur, all tangled up in a pair of blue jeans. You know what a femur is? Leg bone, chief. It's the fisherman. Alligator got him. You think an alligator did this? The chief interrupted. Now, usually gators don't mess with humans. They like their fish, their birds, their turtles, their snakes. I once seen one have a stare-down with a pelican for two hours straight, neither of them budging. Patient. Almost supernaturally patient. Anyway, they mostly stay in the water, but they come out to soak up the sun. If a goat happens to wander by, well, it usually don't end well for that goat. They'll scavenge on a deer if they get the chance, but only a few folks each year actually get attacked by alligators. But don't you go thinking they ain't dangerous. I remember when I was a deputy down in Miami, we had a young girl go missing from a park. Took us a couple of days to find her, and when we did, she was in the belly of a gator. I tell you, it's a sight that still haunts me to this day. Nine fourteen a.m. It's been a while since Chief Cassidy arrived on the scene. He was supposed to meet with Mr. Blackwood, but Blackwood has been meeting with Tyler and Jasmine, Kurt's hysterical girlfriend, all morning, and so the chief decided to walk the grounds alone. Aside from the storm debris, everything looks fine. It's a sunny morning and people are golfing and there's kids playing in the pools. Seagulls have gathered around the various piers and benches fighting for scraps. Mr. Blackwood and Chief Cassidy are finally able to sit down and talk. What's the latest, Chief? Tell me you found him. Well, Deputy Vargas is hoping that something blew off one of the trees during the storm and hit him in the head, and maybe he wandered off somewhere and got lost. But we conducted a pretty thorough search of the area, and he's not out there. I'm thinking, this guy's drinking. Maybe he stops to piss in the water, or maybe he was looking for his ball, he gets hit by lightning, falls in the water, and that's that, unfortunately. Christ! His buddy Tyler said that he'd left him after the ninth hole. Kurt was going to finish up and then meet everybody for dinner, but he never showed up. Tyler didn't have his phone, so he couldn't get in touch with him. His girlfriend couldn't reach him either. Nobody's heard from him. Have we checked to see if it was Tyler's phone on the golf cart? Cassidy asks. Tyler found his phone early this morning. It was on top of the vending machine at the end of the hall. He told me there were no messages from his friend. Your security guy thinks it might have been some kind of a predator, maybe an alligator. Do you think maybe you should alert the rest of the guests to be careful around the water? Rob said that? I trust him, but we've never had that kind of trouble at this resort. As soon as we're done here, I'll have my staff send out an alert to the guests. We'll tell them the situation, that a guest disappeared near the water and to be extra careful. I hope you don't mind if I don't actually use the word alligator. I don't want to start a panic. For all we know, this guy got hit by lightning. Well, Mr. Blackwood said Cassidy. I'm not sure there's much more I can do here. 
We've got some divers out there, and I'm sure you'll be one of the very first to know if they find anything. In the meantime, let's get people to be careful around the water. Blackwood got up to shake his hand, and then sat back down as Chief Cassidy headed towards the door. Just as Cassidy was about to grasp the doorknob, however, his phone rang. It's Deputy Vargas. They may have something from the diver. You mind if I take this here? Blackwood responds with a nod to indicate permission was granted. What you got, Vargas? Answered Cassidy, not bothering with salutations. Chief, I'm on the other side of the resort, over at the Paradise Suite. You'd better get down here. We've got another missing person. It's an eight-year-old girl, Jack. An eight-year-old girl. Chapter 3. Isabella. Anthony and Elizabeth Sterling have been married for 15 blissful years. Anthony, who was only 22 when he inherited a small hotel chain, has since grown the enterprise into a thriving business. The well-to-do couple from England have lived a life of luxury, travel, and culture, yet are doting and responsible parents to their two children, six-year-old Anthony Jr. and recently turned eight-year-old Isabella. Anthony Jr. is a ball of energy and enamored with all things dinosaurs, insects, and turtles. Isabella can be precocious at times, but is generally sweet and fond of ducks, fish, teddy bears, and pizza. The Sterlings met at a charity event in their early 20s and quickly formed a bond over their shared love of fine art, opera, and travel. After several years of courting, they exchanged vows in a grand ceremony at the historic St. George's Chapel in Windsor Castle. They reside in a beautiful suburban home in London and have built a life of love and happiness. To mark their special milestone, the Sterlings have booked the Paradise Suite at the Oasis Golf and Spa Resort in Cypress Point, North Carolina. The resort caught their eye after they discovered a video showcasing its breathtaking setting, lush landscapes, and views. The Paradise Suite in particular holds a special place in their hearts as it is located on a private island with waterfront views, making for the perfect secluded and romantic getaway. <sighs> with the early summer morning sun warming her skin, Elizabeth took a deep breath and smiled as she sat down in a lawn chair on the first floor balcony. She always sleeps soundly during storms. But Anthony Sr. didn't enjoy the tropical storm force winds, cracking branches and rolling thunder. This morning he longs for a shower, a hot cup of coffee, and some peace and quiet. As he sat in bed, he ordered breakfast on his iPad while waiting for the shower to warm up. Little Anthony Jr. burst into the room exclaiming, Daddy, I saw a dinosaur! To which Anthony Sr. replied, A dinosaur! How extraordinary! While pretending to be impressed as he attempted to operate the fancy coffee maker. Retreating to the bathroom for a shower, Anthony Sr. asked Elizabeth to keep an eye on the children. On the balcony, Elizabeth read the latest celebrity gossip on her phone while her children played in the grass nearby. When Isabella asked for more bread to feed the fish in the pond, Elizabeth handed her the bag of bread and reminded her to stay within sight and not venture too close to the water. Lost in a cheesy romance novel she purchased from the hotel gift shop, Elizabeth was abruptly jolted from her daydream by a loud splash and someone shouting in the distance, Holy fuck! Holy fuck, did you see that? 
followed by general noises and a door slamming. Instinctively, she knew something was wrong. She lurched up from her chair and scanned for her children. Immediately to her right was Anthony Jr., playing quietly by himself in the grass. She didn't see Isabella, however. Panic set in. Her heart sank. Blood pressure rose. Her eyes felt like they were being squeezed. All Elizabeth could hear were the sounds of her own heart racing. Where Isabella had been standing, there was only a smashed and muddy bag of bread. Emergency response. What is the nature of your emergency? Oh my god! An alligator just dragged a little kid into the water. I'm out here at the Oasis Resort. Can you see the child now? No, I don't see the kid anymore, but the alligator is still there. Hurry. Okay, please stay calm. We're dispatching emergency responders and animal control to the Oasis Resort right away. Holy fuck. Can you tell me your precise location? I'm on the second floor of the Tar Heel Suite. I don't know the name of the building closest to where it happened. Would you describe the area to me so that our responders know where to go? I'm looking at the far side of the resort. There's kind of a little island suite with walking bridges leading to it. Hurry, please. Okay, we've got your location. Sir, I'm going to ask you to stay on the line with me until responders arrive. Oh my god, holy fuck, hurry, please. There's a mother out here screaming her head off. Oh my god, this is so horrible. The operator can hear people in the background shouting and making unintelligible noises that conveyed disbelief. Can you tell me if the alligator is still there? Can you still see it? No, the alligator just swam off. He went under, I can't see it anymore, but the woman is still screaming. Oh my God, that poor woman. Hurry, please, send someone out here to kill it. We have units en route. They're minutes away. Please, sir, stay on the line with me. Chapter four. Nightly News. Good evening and welcome to Anderson Cooper 360. I'm Anderson Cooper. Tonight we bring you a developing story from the luxurious Oasis Spa and Golf Resort in Cypress Point, North Carolina. This idyllic destination has been turned into a scene of fear and concern as two guests have gone missing in just two days. 27-year-old Curtis Richard Nolan, who was serving as the best man at a wedding which was set to take place tomorrow, disappeared yesterday afternoon and has not been found. This morning, an eight-year-old girl named Isabella Sterling was seen being dragged into the water by a large alligator. Her body has not been recovered, and the community is in shock. Also of note is the fact that the resort is owned by recently announced Senate candidate and wealthy entrepreneur, Orion Blackwood. He announced his candidacy just last month. Now, let's go to Jessica Smith with more details. Thanks, Anderson. We do have some breaking news in just the last 15 minutes. The remains of the first victim, Curtis Richard Nolan, the golfer who went missing yesterday afternoon, have been recovered. Authorities say there is no definitive cause of death but that the remains were consistent with what they are calling a predatory animal attack. As for Isabella, the little girl who went missing, I spoke to one guest who witnessed the whole event. Oh my God, an alligator just dragged a little kid into the water. I'm out here at the Oasis Resort. That was the sound of the 911 call. Just moments after 36-year-old Kenneth Mayhew witnessed the attack, 
It, it was the toughest thing I've ever seen in my life. It was beautiful out here. Sunny morning, birds chirping. I saw this little kid. I learned later it was a little girl. Anyway, she was throwing some bread or popcorn or whatever to the fish, and then this shape just rose out of the water. An alligator, big as a damn minivan. She kind of had her head leaning over the water, like this, and whoosh. It just came right up and grabbed her, pulled her right underwater. It sat there for, I don't know, maybe about a minute. I could still see it when I was on the phone with 911, and then just as quickly as it came, it was gone. A few minutes ago, Police Chief Jack Cassidy spoke with reporters who've gathered in front of the resort. Chief Cassidy, can you tell us why the resort was not closed down after the first attack? Well, you have to understand. This morning, we only had a missing person, following an intense storm. There had been no indication that anyone else was in danger. I spoke to the resort owner, Mr. Blackwood. In fact, I was speaking with him when we learned of the second attack. Chief Cassidy, do you hold Mr. Blackwood personally responsible for these attacks? Personally responsible? What kind of a stupid question is that? No, I don't hold him personally responsible. As soon as we learned about the second missing person, and I mean the very instant we learned, Mr. Blackwood was on the phone to shut down this resort. I get it. He's a political figure. He's divisive. Unfortunately, that's the world we live in. But it was an alligator that did this. That's what's responsible. We don't need the media trying to turn this into a political thing. Now, if you'll excuse me, we've got to go hunt this thing down. We also heard from Mr. Blackwood himself. Good evening. It is with heavy hearts that I come before you today to address a tragic situation that has occurred at our resort. Late last night, my chief of security, Rob Thompson, informed me that one of our guests, Curtis Nolan, had not returned from a golfing outing. Given the sudden and intense nature of yesterday's weather event, we were initially concerned that Mr. Nolan may have fallen victim to a lightning strike or been impacted by flying debris. This morning, as Chief Cassidy and I were discussing ongoing search efforts, we received the heart-wrenching news that an eight-year-old guest, Isabella Sterling, had fallen victim to an attack by a predatory alligator. In response to this shocking development, we took the immediate step of canceling all resort activities and instructing guests to either evacuate or, for their own safety, remain in their rooms until further notice. It is with profound regret that we have since learned that Mr. Nolan was also the victim of a similar attack. In light of these events, I have decided to suspend my campaign for North Carolina's open Senate seat and instead focus all my efforts on working with the Wildlife Department to bring closure to this traumatic situation. To this end, I recently met with Mackie Sullivan, a trained hunter from the Department of Animal Control. As we speak, Mr. Sullivan is preparing a trap to try to lure the alligator back, and I'm told that if we do capture the animal, it will be humanely destroyed in the hope that we may recover little Isabella. It is with the deepest sympathy that we extend our condolences to the families of the victims. Thank you for your attention this evening, and I will be speaking from this podium again tomorrow at 9 a.m. with any overnight updates. Chapter 5, On the Hunt No one really knows what makes us who we are. Take, for instance, the story of Phineas Gage. Gage was a railroad construction foreman who lived in the mid-19th century. 
He was known for his strong work ethic and friendly demeanor, which made him popular among his colleagues and loved by his friends and family. He was described as a responsible, trustworthy, and reliable man. However, one day in 1848, while he was working on the railroad, a catastrophic event changed his life forever. A steel rod that he was using to tamp explosives into a rock ledge accidentally shot up and went through his skull, eventually landing 50 feet behind him. With it, the rod took as much as a teacup full of brain matter. The amazing part about this story is that Gage survived. He never lost consciousness and was up and talking with people almost instantly. He was never the same person, though. He became rude and irritable. He lost a lot of friendships, and by the time he died 12 years later, he had become a real prick. Some people say the same thing happened to Mackie Sullivan. He was a great kid. He helped his neighbor, an old widowed lady named B, carry groceries and would even walk her dog when her knees were barking. No pun intended. Then one day, when he was 10 years old, Mackie was playing football with some friends in the street when he was struck by a drunk driver. He survived, but he was never quite the same kid after that. Not only had the head injury made him just a little bit weird, but he also had a large scar and burns on the back of his head. And so a lot of other kids, unfairly or not, treated him like an outcast. So he became a loner. He also developed this really weird compulsion. And I guess you could call it a talent, too. He would carve these perfectly shaped eggs out of solid chunks of wood. He would just sit on his front porch waiting for the school bus and carving the eggs. Every day. By the time he got to high school, other kids were calling him Mac the Knife, and the name stuck. Mackie did graduate high school, however. He likes to brag that he graduated second from the bottom in his class, meaning there's at least one motherfucker out there dumber than he is. It's a lie, though. Mackie did, in fact, graduate at the very bottom of his class. After high school, Mackie bounced around from job to job, never really finding his footing. He worked at a gas station for a while, then as a dishwasher at a diner, but he was always getting fired for his attitude or for being unreliable. He even tried his hand at being a handyman, but his lack of skills and tendency to cut corners made him more of a hazard than a help. One day, while Mackie was working as a part-time handyman, he found himself face-to-face -face with a raging, frothing-at-the-mouth raccoon. The creature was cornered in a garage, and Mackie had gone in to retrieve some tools. When the raccoon charged, Mackie had no choice but to draw his revolver and shoot it, saving himself from a nasty bite. It was in that moment that Mackie realized that he had a certain knack for taking care of dangerous animals, and he started to see himself in a new light. He applied for a job at the local animal control, and surprisingly, he got it. He figured that as a town employee, He'd at least get to sit around and carve his eggs most of the day, and when he had to work, he'd get to kill stuff. Mackie soon found that his job wasn't all it was cracked up to be, but he took pride in being a part of the team that kept the town safe from vicious animals. One day, Mac was ordered to the Oasis Resort. Something about an alligator attack, and he figured it was gone by now, but he'd at least set up shop and keep an eye out overnight. He hated those rich motherfuckers. For all he cared, ten of them could get eaten by alligators, and it still wouldn't be enough. Then, a story on the radio caught his attention. Mr. and Mrs. Sterling were offering a $50,000 reward to anyone who could kill the alligator that took their daughter in time to give her a proper burial. 
Mac wanted the money and knew that if he shot the gator as part of his official duties, he might get a medal. But he probably wouldn't be allowed to accept the 50 Gs. However, if he set up shop and then the alligator came along, he could quit his job on the spot, shoot the alligator as a private citizen, make a year's salary in a single night. Mackey arrived at the Oasis Resort and was greeted by Chief Cassidy and Mr. Blackwood, who were waiting for him anxiously. Mackey Sullivan, reporting for duty, he said with a smirk and a salute that bordered on disrespectful it was so bad. Listen, we've got a problem with a gator and we need to get it under control, Cassidy said. I'm fully up to speed, replied Mackey. What do you need from me? We need to know your plan, said Mr. Blackwood. How are you going to catch this animal? Mackey hesitated for a moment as he realized that he didn't actually have a plan, but he improvised. Well, I was thinking that I would go to the site of the original attack where the golfer disappeared. I'll set up a big pile of fish, shrimp, and raw chicken from the kitchen and let the alligator come to it. When it does, I'll have a snare set up and I'll be watching from a nearby tree with a high-powered rifle. Cassidy and Blackwood look at each other skeptically. When the gator gets snared, I'll send it on up to gator heaven, or gator hell in this case, replied Mackey with a laugh. Mr. Blackwood squinted in a combination of irritation and disgust, knowing with certainty that Mackey was an absolute buffoon. He found it extremely distasteful that this guy was enjoying himself so much and cracking jokes when a little girl was in the belly of this gator as they spoke. But he managed to keep his opinions to himself. Cassidy and Blackwood both knew that time was of the essence, so they agreed to the plan. They decided they would let Mackie do his thing while they waited anxiously for the results. While Cassidy and Blackwood were busy handling the barrage of media personnel which had descended upon the resort, Mackie was hard at work preparing for his next catch. He scattered buckets of dead fish and chunks of raw chicken along the shoreline of hole number 11 and set up his alligator snare. An alligator snare is a type of trap designed specifically for catching alligators. It consists of a cable loop attached to a metal anchor, and it's triggered by the alligator's movement. When the alligator sticks its head through the loop and pulls on the bait, the loop tightens around the neck and restrains the animal. That's when Mackey planned to whip out his phone, take a video selfie of himself quitting his job and then shooting the alligator, thus guaranteeing his payday. The entire thing would be online by morning. He's gonna go viral. This was his chance at a real payday, some real respect. Mackey proceeded to climb the towering water oak tree that had a branch hanging over the water, providing the perfect vantage point for his hunt. Mackey turned on his old-fashioned gas lantern, pulled out a six-inch cube of pine and his trusty carving knife, and began waiting. As he sat in the tree, his mind was filled with grandiose visions of what he would do with his reward money. He envisioned himself driving the latest sports car, making it rain at the local strip club, and traveling the world in first class, like the first class motherfucker he was. He even thought about heading to Vegas and trying to double his money with a surefire system he'd heard about on the roulette table. He imagined. He imagined a lot. He imagined so hard that his waking dream became just a good old-fashioned sleeping one, and he nodded off in the tree. His dreams of riches began to morph into a dream about living in an epic high-rise. But as dreams are, this one was odd. 
His luxury penthouse had a wooden floor, and it was just so damn creaky. Suddenly, Mackie was jolted awake as the branch beneath him began to give way. He hadn't accounted for potential damage to the limb from yesterday's intense storm, and panic set in as he realized he was about to fall. He frantically tried to grab onto the trunk of the tree, but it was too late. The branch snapped and Mackie found himself tumbling to the ground along the edge of the water, the snare catching his legs, tying them together. Not only had he failed to catch the alligator, he'd caught himself. Feet away, next to the broken branch and shattered lantern, he noticed his incredibly bright LED flashlight was pointed directly at his face, directly into his eyes. Not more than a second later, the light was interrupted by something that had come between he and the flashlight. He looked up, and his eyes locked with the cold, unyielding gaze of the alligator. Chapter 6 Face-Off Orion Blackwood was a man of many talents. From a young age, he showed an exceptional intellect and maturity beyond his years. Growing up in a working-class family in the Midwest, he had to scrape and hustle to make ends meet. But he was never content to just get by. Instead, he saw every obstacle as an opportunity to learn, grow, and succeed. As a teenager, Blackwood taught himself computer programming and began freelancing for local businesses. He quickly established himself as a highly skilled developer and was soon sought after by companies from all over the country. His natural charisma and business savvy helped him close deals and build relationships with clients, and he quickly rose through the ranks of the tech industry. By the time he was in his early 20s, Blackwood was a successful entrepreneur running a successful tech company, and investing in promising startups. But he was always looking for new challenges, and so he decided to pivot to the hospitality industry. He purchased a small hotel in Florida and transformed it into a luxury resort, quickly establishing a reputation for himself as a natural in the industry. Over the next five years, Blackwood sold his tech business and began to exponentially grow his resort empire, acquiring properties all over the world and becoming one of the most successful hoteliers of all time. He was praised for his innovative ideas, his commitment to sustainability, and his ability to bring a sense of elegance and sophistication to every property under his care. As his business flourished, Blackwood turned his attention to politics, seeking to use his success and influence to make a difference in the world. On his 30th birthday, he announced his campaign for governor of Florida and quickly emerged as a rising star in the political scene, winning the hearts of voters with his charismatic speeches and bold vision for the future. But just as his campaign was gaining momentum, it was revealed that his campaign manager, who also happened to be his older sister Ophelia, was arrested buying cocaine from an undercover officer. Blackwood's political opponents pounced on the scandal, using it to paint him as a weak and ineffective leader. He's too inexperienced to even govern his own campaign, the ad said. How's he going to govern a state the size of Florida? Despite his best efforts to clear his sister's name and protect her privacy, the damage was done, and he decided to end both his campaign and his political ambitions for the time being. 
Over the next several months, he became engaged to his longtime girlfriend, Maria, and the two eloped in a small and private ceremony at what was perhaps his most beautiful property, and Maria's favorite, the Oasis Golf Resort and Spa in Cypress Point, North Carolina. It was the happiest time of Blackwood's life, but sadly, it was short-lived. Seven months later, while pregnant with their first child, Maria was having brunch with girlfriends when she suddenly took on a bizarre expression, brought her hand to her forehead, and collapsed. At just 26 years old, an aneurysm had taken her life. His sister and her new husband, Rob Thompson, the Florida police officer whom had arrested her, moved to North Carolina and took up permanent residence in the resort. Thompson was hired as the chief of security, and he's held that role for the last 19 years, despite the fact that Ophelia and he have since split up. She now lives in Montana and has been sober for over a decade. The controversy had been a devastating blow to his family's reputation, and the death of Maria felt like it could be the final blow that sent him to the canvas for good. Despite being mired in a deep depression, Blackwood refused to give up. He knew that he had something to offer the world, and he was determined to make a comeback. As a means of distraction, he poured his energy into making Maria's favorite property the finest resort location in the United States. Twenty years later, having accomplished that goal, he was feeling perhaps the most settled he had ever been. Jesus Christ, Cassidy cried out, staring in disbelief at the bloody corpse before him. It bit his goddamn face off. The sun was rising over the trees on the other side of the water as Cassidy, Orion Blackwood, and Security Chief Thompson gathered around the grisly scene. I got out here early this morning at about 5.15 a.m., Security Chief Thompson said. I expected him to be packing up or maybe, hopefully, wrapping up a dead gator. I couldn't fucking believe it. We've got a real problem here, Chief. O's campaign is over. This place is going to be a ghost town if we don't catch this thing. Just then, Vargas arrived on the scene, interrupting their thoughts. Holy shit! Was that Mackie Sullivan? He asked. Yeah, you know him? The chief replied. Vargas walked over to the shoreline and picked up a perfectly carved pine egg, examining it as if it were a lost Egyptian hieroglyph. The egg! Dead giveaway. I always wondered what happened to him, he said. This egg thing. Did you know about the eggs? He asked looking up at Cassidy and Blackwood with a quizzical expression. Mackie had this head injury from when he was a kid, and it unlocked these weird abilities. Apparently this is a thing. Some guy hits his head. All of a sudden he can play the piano. Go figure. But for Mackie, it was like this craving to carve little eggs out of wood was his thing. Before Vargas could finish his thought, there was an enormous eruption of water behind him. The gator lurched from the water, grabbed Vargas by the ass, and in one motion pulled him into the water before anyone could react. Vargas! The chief yelled, pulling out his gun. For a moment they could all see Vargas's shape beneath the murky water, but he was quickly dragged out of sight. Cassidy considered for a moment emptying his weapon into the water in the hopes of hitting the bigger target, but he thought better of it. The three men stood in disbelief, waiting for Vargas to break the surface. But he never did. Let's figure this out. Right here. Right now. Cassidy said, determination in his voice. Four attacks. Three of them at this location. We know where he is. Cassidy got on the radio and ordered the channel netted off 100 yards in both directions. He called in the other deputies on duty, ordering them to bring all the firepower they could. 
What's the plan, Chief? Asked Blackwood. We're gonna give that thing nowhere else to go, Cassidy replied, a plan forming in his mind. And we're gonna sit here with this fucking corpse until he comes back to feed on it. I don't care if it takes all week. And then when it comes back, we're going to kill it. I don't care if we have to shoot it or blow it up with dynamite. It must die. This thing is bloodthirsty. It cannot leave this channel alive. I'm a wealthy man, Chief. This place, it's the most important place in the world to me. Hell, I don't know why I ever wanted to leave. What I'm trying to say is, whatever resources you need, say the word. But I'm with you. Nobody leaves until we kill this fucking animal. The two men nodded at each other, and then met hands with a firm handshake. Cool plan, guys. Oh, by the way, I don't need a shake. I'm good. Let's get the coroner down here, too. There's no way we're gonna let that corpse bake in the sun all day. I'll get us some chicken. Maybe someone should call Vargas's wife. Chapter 7, Sacrifice The attack on Deputy Vargas made him the alligator's fourth victim in three days, making this now officially the deadliest alligator menace in U.S. history. In the official history books, there were only three other recorded cases of alligators claiming at least three victims within a seven-day period. And as Cassidy, Blackwood, and Thompson stood over the bloody remains of Mackie Sullivan, they knew that they would soon join the ranks of those who had faced the ultimate test of man against beast. In 1858, the port city of Charleston, South Carolina, was plagued by a giant alligator that terrorized the local citizens. It all started when the beast claimed its first victim, a local fisherman, and disappeared back into the shadows of the Ashley River. The local authorities, unable to find the alligator, brought in a group of hunters from the surrounding countryside to track down the beast. The hunters scoured the river for days, losing two men to the teeth of the scaly behemoth. Finally, finding the alligator holed up in a marshy inlet, the men surrounded the beast, firing shot after shot into its thick hide, but the alligator wouldn't go down. In a final act of desperation, one of the hunters snuck up behind the alligator and plunged a hunting knife deep into its heart. The alligator thrashed wildly, but its lifeblood spilled out into the river, and it was finally defeated. In 1914, the small town of Marathon in the Florida Keys was plagued by a gator that terrorized the citizens for five brutal days and nights. After the beast claimed its first victim, a young boy who was fishing in the mangrove swamps, the townspeople organized a hunt, but the alligator was too cunning and managed to evade them for three days. On the fourth day, the gator took two children who were playing too close to the water. Finally, a local guide, who had grown up in the area and knew the swamps like the back of his hand, was able to track down the alligator. The guide brought the beast to bay in a narrow canal and, with a single shot from his trusty shotgun, brought an end to the terror that had gripped the town. And then there was Baton Rouge in 1992. A giant alligator terrorized the city, claiming three swimmers in just three days. The local authorities, unable to find the beast, called in the Louisiana Wildlife and Fisheries Commission to assist in the hunt. A team of experts was assembled, including an alligator hunter from the Atchafalaya Basin, 
a local fisherman who knew the waters of the Mississippi River, and a renowned wildlife biologist. The team tracked the alligator for days, finally cornering it in a remote oxbow lake. The alligator charged, but the hunter was able to get on the shot, bringing the beast down for good. And now, on a gorgeous Saturday morning in Cypress Point, Cassidy, Blackwood, and Thompson had just witnessed the fourth attack since Thursday. Curtis Nolan, the 27-year-old golfer, Isabella Sterling, the 8-year-old on vacation, 30-year-old Mackie Sullivan of the Cypress Point Animal Control, and now Deputy James Vargas, 34, a distinguished officer, had fallen to the beast. After a few moments, Cassidy realized his emotions had gotten the best of him. He couldn't use Mr. Sullivan as bait, even if it was the most useful thing he would have ever accomplished. He set up a command post about 50 yards from the shoreline, ordered the coroner to gather the body, and began to set up some chairs and guns for the stakeout. Working with the local explosives expert and Dwayne Cunningham of Animal Control, they reset the snare that had been released from Mackey's corpse and placed two buckets filled with explosives on either side of the snare. Blackwood, meanwhile, was having a luxury RV parked a further 50 yards from the shore for use by anyone present in the stakeout. He spared no expense and even set out a box of his finest Cuban cigars for anyone who needed a way to kill some time while they waited. Blackwood also ordered the clubhouse and kitchen opened and scheduled regular deliveries of food, water, and cola to the RV. Security Chief Thompson worked with two other members of Animal Control to set up boat stations near the netted-off portions of the channel. Their job would be to force the alligator back towards the shore on hole number 11, forcing it into a smaller and smaller area and ultimately allowing it to be snared. Cassidy would then unload on both the alligator and the buckets of explosives, sacrificing the destruction of a portion of the course in exchange for the termination of the beast. Sunday, June 27th, 2.13 a.m. The saga has now entered its fourth day. Everyone has been in position since just before dusk, and aside from trips to the RV for a bathroom break or to have a sandwich, nobody has left the area around the 11th hole for almost 24 hours. You know, Chief, I've never seen anyone die before this. It was just so... quick. It never ceases to amaze me how fragile life is. One moment you can be driving along, or sound asleep, or having brunch, or telling some crazy story about a dead man's whittling compulsion, and then, poof, it's all over. I've seen too many people die. It's not like in the movies. You can rarely see it coming. And you're right. It's usually quick, unexpected. I guess that has its advantages, you know? What about you, Blackwood? Do you want it to be quick, or do you want a chance to see it coming, to look death in the eye and say, let's see what all the fuss is about? I thought about that a lot today, actually. I talk to the old-timers that come here sometimes. I think that there's a lot of wisdom to be gained in that. You know, the ones in their 80s or 90s that come here to spend the last of their savings. Or the ones who get a tough diagnosis and then come here for one final send-off with their family before they begin the inevitable downward spiral. Some of them seem like they're ready to go. Like they're just ready to take off a tight pair of shoes. Others, you can tell it eats at them. I think however it happens, I just want it to be on my terms. When I'm ready. But I don't know if I ever will be. Blackwood takes a puff of his cigar and looks up at the sky to blow out the smoke. Then, 
The two men resume waiting in silence. 3.02 a.m. The men have been sitting in silence, drinking coffee and fighting sleep as they listen to the soothing sounds of nature. Suddenly, the warm summer ambiance is interrupted by a single gunshot cutting through the air. Chief, it's Thompson. We've spotted the gator. Deputy Johnson just fired on it. We could hear the impact and the growl. We definitely think it's been hit. It's headed your direction. Get ready. Over. About ten hours earlier, when the men first sat down to begin their stakeout, Chief Cassidy had handed Blackwood a loaded 357 Magnum revolver. Ever fired a gun? The chief asked. Blackwood silently and slowly shook his head side to side. Keep it pointed away from me. And don't even think about putting your finger near the trigger on that thing unless there's a 15-foot-long alligator dragging my ass into the intercoastal waterway. Got it? So, let me get this straight. At this point in your official operation, the last line of defense against a 15-foot-long, 1,000-pound alligator is the only guy who's never shot a gun? Look at it this way, Blackwood. If you kill the gator and save the day, you'll be elected president. Sitting in the inky blackness on the 11th hole's green, Blackwood reached down beside his chair and tightly clutched the icy steel firearm. Cassidy lowered his night vision goggles, revealing the alligator's slow movement through the water, appearing to him to be moving north to south, or from his perspective, left to right. At times, the gator was hidden from view as it passed behind the occasional tree. He estimated its speed to be roughly 10 miles per hour, but noted that it was gradually slowing down. Blackwood also lowered his night vision goggles. Remember, Cassidy whispered in a hushed tone, We'll wait for the snare to wrap it up, and then I'll unload on it. If it gets loose and attacks me, only then do you shoot. Understood? Once I fire a few rounds, if it's still alive, I'll shoot one of those explosive buckets. Keep your mouth open, or the blast could shatter your eardrums. The alligator's pace slowed even more as it approached the shore and suddenly rose out of the water with a slow, ominous crawl. It stepped right onto the snare, which must have malfunctioned. Either it was set up incorrectly or the alligator had somehow accidentally made all of the precise movements necessary to avoid triggering the trap. Cassidy did not hesitate. Four rapid shots, at least two of which struck the alligator, one clearly tearing a chunk of flesh from above its left shoulder and the other hitting the base of its tail. The beast thrashed briefly but appeared mostly unscathed. Cassidy tried to fire again but his rifle jammed. Blackwood extended the 357. Cassidy snatched the weapon and stated, I don't think it will make much of a difference from here. I need to get closer. He then appeared to be deep in thought, calculating his next move. Blackwood took off running. Blackwood, what the fuck are you doing? Blackwood was running directly at the alligator as fast as he could. And then, like a base runner going into second base on an easy double, Blackwood slid towards the snare and in one motion grabbed the loop and popped up out of his slide. He backed up. The alligator turned abruptly and hissed, and then bang! Cassidy fired a shot that missed, causing the gator to turn its head toward Cassidy and allowing Blackwood to slip the snare over the thrashing gator's head. The gator then quickly turned back towards Blackwood, its huge thrashing tail knocking Cassidy off of his feet, causing the gun to fumble from his hands, but settling at Blackwood's feet. 
Blackwood grabs the gun, but the gator grabs his arm. He yells in pain. With his one free hand, he grabs the gun, and with the gator firmly clamped down on his arm and retreating towards the water, Blackwood looks Cassidy directly in the eyes. Run, Chief! Run! As the gator attempts to pull Blackwood into the water, Cassidy sees Blackwood point the gun directly at the bucket of explosives, just feet from where he and the gator are struggling. Cassidy dives into the water. See you later, alligator! Chief! Mr. Blackwood, this is Thompson. Can you hear me? Over. This is Thompson. I repeat, can you hear me? Over. Thompson, this is Chief Cassidy. We got it. It's gone. It's over. A little over four months later, Chief Cassidy stood in line. He's never cared for politics, and it was his first time he ever intended to vote in an election. The man for which he wished to cast his ballot wasn't even on the ballot. But he saved his life. He probably saved at least a few more lives, too. Underneath the names of the two candidates who had won their respective primaries was a checkbox next to a long, blank space. He wrote the name, Orion Blackwood. Snap is an original thriller from Streamski Media. Listen again, Before You Go in the Water. Written, produced, and directed by Derek Lewandowski. Special thanks to Blue Wire Podcasts. Subscribe to us on YouTube at Streamski Media.